Shame, shame, go away. What I want back is what I was. Sylvia Plath When I awoke in Buckingham Palace, it was as if I were still in a dream. I turned my head to the tall, narrow windows, where sunlight was just beginning to peek through the gray clouds. I had drawn open the heavy drapes the night before so that I would rise with the first light and see the view of the Queen Victoria Memorial and Gardens. At the palace gates, the Queen's guards stood erect in their red and black uniforms. The balcony, where the Queen stood annually to inspect the trooping of the color parade, and where Prince William and Kate Middleton had waved to fans on their wedding day three weeks earlier, was just down the hall from the bedroom where I lay. It was early, but the fatigue I had been experiencing over the last few weeks felt like a distant memory. I pulled the sheets down to stare at my belly. My long, fitted gown for the evening's white-tie dinner hung on the bathroom door and I hoped I would be able to get the zipper all the way up. At the foot of the bed was an elegant chestnut-brown writing desk, where I had left the briefing book I had started reading the night before. On top of that was the Secretary of State's private schedule, which noted the evening's dinner hosted by Queen Elizabeth in honor of President Obama's state visit to the United Kingdom. Among the many staff members on this trip, I was one of the fortunate few invited to stay at the palace and attend the dinner, courtesy of the White House. Next to my formal invitation to the dinner was a stack of pale blue palace stationery. I climbed out of bed, wearing one of the delicate white nightgowns I had been given at my bridal shower, impractical until this trip, and I sat down at the desk to begin my day. When I had caught up on emails, I pulled out a single piece of stationery and wrote a letter to my husband. Dear Anthony, is it possible for any two people to be happier or more blessed? Some days I cannot believe it. We must remember to be grateful to God that He has given us so much. I love you. Huma. Wiener, May 24, 2011. I hadn't legally taken Anthony's name when we were married and never used it except for this one single time. He had never asked me if I wanted to or would, and since in both Islamic and Middle Eastern custom, a woman retains her maiden name when she marries, the question had never occurred to me until we were applying for our marriage license and the official asked if I planned to take my husband-to-be's name. I declined without even considering it. In this moment, though, I felt more connected to Anthony than ever before. I placed the note in the matching envelope, got dressed, and went into the adjoining sitting room that connected our two bedrooms to meet up with my boss, who was seated in a wing-back chair reading some papers as the palace staff wheeled in scrambled eggs and properly brewed tea. For a moment, I thought I would tell her, but I stopped myself. It was too early to share the news. I first got my period when I was 11, 
and, in a panic, ran to my father for help. He calmed me down, patiently explaining that it was a natural process in a woman's body. He then gently passed me off to my mother to show me how to use what he referred to as the necessary napkins. From that day on, I have been down to the day regular. So, when four weeks earlier, I had to struggle to zip up my skirt, feeling bloated but not menstruating, I knew. I didn't share my suspicion with Anthony, but stopped at a pharmacy to pick up two pregnancy tests, both of which almost instantly developed a faint pink line. I handed Anthony an old black jewelry box with one of the sticks in it, and he looked down at the box, then at me, thunderstruck. What is this? And then, are you sure? As he lowered himself onto our white sofa in Washington, his eyes instantly beginning to water. Anthony, never at a loss for words, was, for a brief moment, speechless. He kept staring at the stick, then at me, stuttering. I I can't believe it. As the news began to sink in, he went right back to being himself. Are you okay? How do you feel? Have you been sick? How long have you known? What can I do? Oh my God, I can't wait. I'm going to be a father. We're going to be parents. Are you craving anything? No, I wasn't craving anything in particular, and I felt fine. Those were the cursory answers to his questions. On a deeper level, I was uncertain about what this meant for my life. I had gone from dating a man, my first serious relationship, to engagement, to marriage, and now to pregnancy in the blink of an eye. Whenever I visited friends and family who had small kids, I was comfortable holding, playing with, feeding, and babysitting them, but I was always happy to return them to their parents at the end of the day. I also couldn't register how quickly I had gotten pregnant, since I had been so often warned about the challenges, especially since Anthony and I were old to be new parents. I was 35 and Anthony was 46. Some part of my mixed emotions was sheer disbelief. But the obstetrician later pointed out that I was healthy, had no family history of difficult pregnancies, wasn't a smoker, didn't consume alcohol. She was not at all surprised that it was so easy for me to conceive. I could finally allow for the possibility that God really was granting us this gift. Walking out of the doctor's office that afternoon, reassured that all was and would be okay, I was so excited that it seemed almost impossible to contain this new secret. By the time I got to Buckingham Palace, I was about eight weeks along. We had told our parents and siblings, but no one else. And now I sat at the very end of the long formal banquet table in my orange gown which had thankfully zipped but was definitely snug. While the palace staff reviewed with us all the do's and don'ts of royal protocol, wait till Her Majesty extends her hand before you attempt to shake it. If you run into the queen in the hallway, only speak to her if she speaks to you first. Otherwise, simply carry on. This is her home, after all. Wait for Her Majesty to stand for the toast before you stand. No one will leave dinner before the queen and the president. I was fixated on only one thing. What if I felt sick? 
I worried that getting up mid-meal would be a breach of protocol. At the end of the briefing, I asked if it would be acceptable to use the restroom during the multi-course meal. Yes, they assured me, it was perfectly okay. This was a working visit, but staying at Buckingham Palace made it singularly special. That afternoon, HRC and I had explored the Queen's private gardens with one of her gracious ladies-in-waiting. Over the course of my career with the Clintons, I had been privileged to sip tea and eat meals at royal palaces, to attend elaborate functions at grand hotels and mansions, to tour monuments and cultural attractions few other people had ever seen, all around the world, from the Middle East to Southeast Asia to Europe. Nothing, however, quite compared to this visit to Buckingham Palace, which was particularly welcome after an intense month. Before we left for the trip, a woman had been arrested and jailed for driving in Saudi Arabia. The rules banning women from driving were premised on guardianship laws instituted in 1917 that required women be granted permission from their male guardian to marry, or to study, or travel abroad. Driving fell under the travel category. The arrest seemed like a warning to all Saudi women. This was an internal matter involving a sovereign ally, and the way HRC generally dealt with situations like this was through a private conversation with her foreign counterpart, which in past instances had proven successful. The young woman driver, whose name we learned was Manal al-Sharif, had been arrested in the midst of launching the Women to Drive movement to challenge the guardianship laws and was jailed for nine days. As the movement began to gain steam, HRC wanted to do more than make a private call, so she made a public statement commending the woman's bravery. Eventually, Al-Sharif had to leave her family in Saudi Arabia and move abroad for her safety. Only later did we find out that her release had been conditional on her promise never to drive on Saudi land again. The most consequential of the month's developments was the death of Osama bin Laden. The raid was authorized to take place the night of the annual White House Correspondents' Dinner, which the media and most of Washington's political and social elite attended each year. It had been a big night for me because it was the first time I was going to an event after learning I was pregnant, and I was worried that people would notice my belly. When President Obama nodded casually at me from the stage, I carried my little secret, not knowing he was carrying a far bigger secret. The mission to get bin Laden was to begin in a matter of hours. I had gleaned that something was up when HRC started attending meetings in the White House Situation Room, about which I was told nothing. That was unusual. For principal committee White House meetings, the secure phone on my desk would ring, and I would be told the agenda so I could inform the NSC who on her team would accompany HRC. For these recent meetings, the NSC had offered no topic, and I wasn't asked who would join HRC. I didn't press her for more details. 
If there was anything more I needed to know, she would have told me. HRC called me as she left the White House after President Obama announced the death of bin Laden. I could hear the note of vindication in her voice, and my mind was transported back to ground zero. The many trips we had made there since the day of the attack. Watching the rubble removed, then the slow rebuilding. How right this moment felt. How completely right. Two days after the state dinner with the Queen of England, we flew to Islamabad. The U.S. had carried out the raid on bin Laden's compound without giving any notice to the Pakistanis. Under any normal circumstances, our country would not send Black Hawk helicopters into another sovereign nation that also happened to be an ally. The purpose of these meetings with the civilian and military leadership was to smooth over any ruffled feathers. President Zardari had lost his own wife in a terrorist attack and was supportive of the U.S. action. When I looked at the faces of the military leaders as we walked in for meetings, however, I sensed tension. Even the tea they served was lukewarm. On our last trip to Pakistan, HRC had said publicly that she believed bin Laden was hiding out there possibly with at least tacit protection of some of the leaders, but the government and the military always denied it. After a long, full trip, we returned home, and I dragged myself into my D.C. apartment a little after 1 a.m. and climbed straight into bed. As was my norm, I woke up in the middle of the night to scroll through my BlackBerry groggy from jet lag, but driven by the nagging compulsion to check on any emerging world crisis. I was one of the main points of contact for the Secretary of State on any news, information, or messages coming from or going to her, which left me essentially on call all the time. In this job, I couldn't afford to wait until 7 a.m. to check in. Too much might have already happened by then. As I scrolled through my emails, a text appeared from Anthony, who was in New York. You there? Yes, I replied. It took a few minutes for the next message to come through. My Twitter was hacked and someone posted a photo. There might be a story, but I am working on fixing the problem. Nothing for you to worry about. See you soon. He told me not to worry. So even though the concept of being hacked was unsettling, I didn't. I just saw this as yet another item on the unending stream of incoming. Anthony was the problem solver in our relationship. And since he said he was handling this one, I was sure he would. Besides, there was nothing I could do about it. So I moved on to the next 10 issues in my inbox. In the past year, We had visited 53 countries, spending 481 hours traveling. Now we were almost halfway through a year where we would plan and execute visits to 46 countries and spend 570 hours traveling. There was so much work, it always felt like I was just scratching the surface. I put the BlackBerry down and tried to catch a few more hours of sleep before boarding the noon shuttle to LaGuardia the next day. 
when I walked through the U.S. Air Shuttle arrivals area after landing in New York, something was amiss. For nearly two years, without fail, any time I landed, Anthony would be in baggage claim, waiting, chatting up the airport staff or taking a picture with a constituent or pacing back and forth on a conference call. I'd walk out, he would envelop me in a hug and grab my bags to carry them out to the car. Anthony had never been late, until today. Puzzled, I called him, and he said he was outside. I walked out, and sure enough, our gray Ford Escape was idling in the taxi lane. Anthony, at the wheel, slightly slumped over. He was wearing an old gray T-shirt that I always thought was too short, like it had shrunk in the wash, and a pair of mustard shorts I had bought him. He looked exhausted and gaunt, and like he hadn't showered. He gave me a weak hug. He had predicted correctly that there might be news. That morning, a right-wing blog had reported that an indecent image of a man wearing gray boxer briefs had popped up on Anthony's Twitter feed before being quickly deleted. Just as Anthony had said in his message to me, his spokesman was claiming the photo was the work of a hacker. But Andrew Breitbart, the right-wing provocateur who had threatened to come after Anthony, was sharing details about the deleted tweet on his site, demanding a full-scale investigation, and later saying that he had even more photos. Anthony would sometimes tell me about the combat he engaged in online, and he seemed to enjoy the virtual version of it just as much as he did the in-person bouts. Still, I never felt like he was on it too much. I was on my phone as much as he was, if not more, rarely putting it down for more than 10 minutes during waking hours. Sometimes we talked about the comments he was getting on his feed. Lies, vitriol, threats directed at him, President Obama, our party. I couldn't understand why he would wade through that garbage voluntarily. They're just cyber trolls, he'd remind me. But I'm not going to let them bully me. If anything, they seemed to egg him on. Why don't you just quit Twitter, I asked one day as we were sitting on the couch in the living room sharing the paper. What? And let them win, he said? Never. As we drove home to Forest Hills from LaGuardia, his right hand resting on my belly for the ten-minute ride, I went into consoling mode. Are you okay? Have you guys made any progress figuring out who did this? What is the plan? He gave me short answers. He told me he was on it and that he might need to hire a firm to get to the bottom of it. I felt violated, angry for him, but also confident that he would get past it. HRC had been falsely accused of all kinds of nefarious acts. So scandal, based on even the wildest of fabrications, wasn't exactly new territory for me. After the weekend, we left the city as planned to spend a night with friends on Long Island. It was Memorial Day weekend, the two-year anniversary of our engagement. The city was unseasonably hot, and I was glad to have a break from it. 
On the drive, we chatted about how we would tell people I was pregnant once I passed the 12-week mark, though that was still nearly a month away. As the weekend progressed and the story moved beyond the tabloids and exploded onto cable news, Anthony began to seem distracted. Still, I was sure he would be able to figure out how to battle his way out of this. The Anthony I knew always did. Over dinner, the conversation turned to children. Our friend's beautiful son was running around, charming us all, and the couple was expecting their second in a matter of weeks. Naturally, they started teasing us about when we were going to have children. Perhaps because I was bursting just being surrounded by this happy family. Perhaps because I wanted to lift Anthony's spirits. I volunteered that I was pregnant. It felt good to share my secret, to make the abstract idea feel real in the world. The next morning, we both flew to Washington. Anthony was quickly engulfed by press gaggles everywhere he went on the hill. Proof, as if we needed more, that the story wasn't going away. Anthony called to tell me he had decided to do a round of interviews to clear things up, and I wished him luck. Meanwhile, I buried myself in work back at State. When I walked into HRC's office for my first meeting of the day, she got right to the point. What is going on? she asked. I assured her that it was nothing and that Anthony's team hoped to discover the perpetrators soon. From there, we shifted to discussing plans for the next trip. That whole week had the quality of a cold coming on. When you feel achy and drained and never know if you'll be better tomorrow or worse. On Wednesday, Anthony sat down for four hours of back-to-back TV interviews, once again denying that he had sent the message or any others like it. Everything he said, or didn't, seemed only to add gasoline to the fire. The next weekend, we went to the same friend's house where we had hosted our first Thanksgiving as an engaged couple with Anthony's family. Our little apartment had begun to feel very claustrophobic. We didn't talk much on the two-hour drive. Once we got to the house, there were flashes of the usual Anthony, but also stretches of unusual silence. Gone was the lighthearted mood of celebration and anticipation about becoming parents. When I woke up the morning of our departure, alone in bed, I realized that Anthony had never joined me in the bedroom. I walked past the small guest room at the end of the hall and noticed that the bed there had been slept in. I walked down the stairs and found Anthony in the doorframe with his head down, bags laid at his feet. Not in, not out. What's wrong? I asked. And then, just like that, life as I'd known it was officially over. It's true, he said. I sent the picture. I still remember everything about where we were in that moment. The white shaggy rug, the wooden staircase, the front door ajar, the sofa to my left. Anthony opened his mouth to speak, and as though a damn wall had burst, words came flooding out. 
He said that he couldn't stand lying anymore. His body shook as he tried to choke back tears. Over the next few minutes, he admitted he had intended to send the picture as a direct message to someone he had befriended over Twitter, but accidentally posted it publicly and then deleted it. That it had been a tawdry joke, a dare. It didn't mean anything. And he was ashamed and embarrassed and sorry that he had brought this upon us. I felt something explode inside my chest, and suddenly it was hard to breathe. I was simultaneously filled with rage and stunned to my core. It felt like a bolt of lightning had struck me and run straight through my body. That bolt was the only thing keeping me standing upright. Whatever personal pain and betrayal I felt, I instinctively set aside. I didn't break down in tears or collapse on the sofa. The first thing out of my mouth wasn't, how could you do this to me, or I thought you loved me. The first thing I said was, you mean you've been lying to the whole world for a week? Anthony, you have people counting on you. You owe them the truth. I know, he said. I have to go back and deal with the consequences. His first impulse was to drive back to Manhattan right away, but I stopped him. There was no point waiting a single minute longer. He needed to get on the phone with his senior team, tell them the facts, and start arranging for a press conference where he would tell the truth. We both stood in the living room as his advisors got on the phone. And then we endured the silence on the line as they digested the news, followed by the quick pivot to arrange a press conference so that he could come clean to the world. I left Anthony to deal with the details and walked out to the deck overlooking the pond. I breathed in the warm air as I looked out at the placid water, every fiber in my body screaming, What is happening to my life? Perhaps if he had told me that he was secretly seeing someone, I would have been so hurt and angry that I would have walked out on him then and there. But at that moment, it seemed to me that my husband had done something infuriating, deeply inappropriate, juvenile, crass, and stupid, but not something that fundamentally altered our relationship. The shock, the fury, traveling through each cell of my body was more for my child than for myself or for the joy that was slipping away when we had just begun to feel it. These were supposed to be the days when we reveled in the arrival of this miracle, days of bliss and blessings, and they had been for me. What had they been for him? The drive back to the city was stony, silent, him remorseful, me armored with mute anger. What was eating at me more than the betrayal was the full week of lies. He repeated how sorry and ashamed he was, how much he loathed himself for what he had done. I just want our baby to be proud of their daddy, he said. Then why did you do what you did? The words raged in my head.
as he did another conference call with his press team. I stared out the window, tuning out most of what they discussed because I needed to focus on something else. Preparing myself for the gathering press I suspected we would find outside our apartment. Since our engagement, I had gotten used to posing for photos at red carpets and all kinds of political and cultural events. Once inside, whatever ballroom or auditorium or private fundraiser, I usually had a great time. Our social life was fun, glittery even, and I accepted the obligatory photo ops as part of his job. But now the attention was going to be on my doorstep and I knew it would be hostile and invasive. There wasn't much I could do about any of it, but I did want to try to control the possibility that my baby bump might be visible enough to make my pregnancy apparent in a photo. An hour away from the city, I called Hibba and asked if she could meet me a few blocks away from our apartment with a loose blazer or jacket anything that would cover my belly. What in God's name is going on, she asked. At that moment, I didn't have the heart to tell her, so I just said, please, just do this for me. She did then what she would do over and over in the coming years, showing that she unquestioningly always had my back. Hibba drove to Queens with a gray blazer, met me on a street corner, gave me a quick hug, reminded me she was there if I needed her for anything, and barely looked at Anthony, who sat at the wheel. We parked the car a couple of blocks from our home. I put on my borrowed blazer and steeled myself. As we approached our building on Ascan Avenue, I stared straight ahead and rushed past the cameras. I climbed the three flights of stairs to our apartment and felt trapped the moment I walked in. I opened all the windows and sat seething at the dining table, not sure whether to unpack my bags or break something. Suddenly, there was a knock on our apartment door. We ignored it. Then we heard a woman's voice outside the hall repeating Anthony's name over and over. We ignored that, too. I don't know why I went with Anthony for his press conference. Maybe it was to be sure he did it. Maybe because we were now so used to being a unit, any other possibility seemed unnatural. But as I sat in the conference room of his campaign attorney's office in Manhattan and listened to him read his statement aloud to his team, I understood for the first time that he had exchanged inappropriate messages with more than one woman. Risa Heller, Anthony's savvy tell-it-like-it-is communications advisor and a good friend to both of us, looked at him as he said those words, and then at me. When someone asked if I would be going out to the press conference with him, I shook my head, and there was at the same time a unanimous no way around the room, with Risa's voice the loudest, no fucking way. As they all walked out of the room and toward the cameras, I slipped out to the lobby and onto the streets of Manhattan. Free. Anonymous. 
This was Anthony's mess. He needed to clean it up. I jumped into a cab and headed toward the Midtown Hotel, where a friend had booked a room so that I wouldn't have to spend another night in our apartment, staked out by photographers and surprised by random knocks at the door and voices in the hallway. A few family members and friends joined me, mostly because I didn't want to be alone with Anthony and my anger. I ordered comfort food for everyone. As people congregated in the sitting area outside the bedroom, there were lots of hugs and expressions of sympathy. When Anthony arrived after his press conference, casually loosening his tie as though he had just gotten through some random work event, there was a marked shift in the mood of the room. I tried to relieve the tension by directing people toward the trolleys of food, but one by one they excused themselves, checking their watches, remembering somewhere they had to be, thanking me for offering, but they just weren't hungry. The night was brief and awkward, the conversation stilted, the food untouched, departures early and en masse. None of these people wanted to be here, I thought, as I climbed under the crisply starched hotel bedsheets and mercifully found some peace and sleep. I didn't read or watch the news coverage then or in the days thereafter. I had been in politics long enough to have a healthy skepticism about the gossip that appeared in the press, especially in the tabloids. From my White House years on, I had gotten used to reading stories about my boss that were riddled with inaccuracies. Our approach had always been to avoid responding to the crazier accusations, especially the salacious gossip, so as not to elevate the stories. Now that it was my husband who was in the headlines, I decided that for my own mental health, I would avoid all the news about Anthony. If there were any important developments I needed to know about, I could rely on others to tell me, even if Anthony didn't. Still, I was aware that a media storm was swirling around us. The coming clean statement hadn't settled anything. It just raised more questions. What was the nature of these relationships? Who were the women? Was he using government devices for these exchanges? Some House colleagues and other political leaders swiftly called for a House investigation. Others for his resignation. On top of everything, it turned out I was wasting my time trying to think up creative ways to tell my extended family colleagues, and friends that I was pregnant. That was another unintended casualty of the week. The day after Anthony's press conference, I was standing in our galley kitchen washing dishes when Philippe called. Well, I've never had to make a call like this, and it is really awkward. But I just got a message from the New York Times saying that they intend to report that you were pregnant. This second bolt of lightning was more visceral, more vivid, more enraging, and I felt the heat rise in me as I struggled to keep calm. No, no, no. This was my body, my special secret. 
Isn't this a rite of passage that people are entitled to? Find the space and way to tell the people they love that they are bringing a child into the world when the doctors tell them it is safe to do so? This is not something a reporter shares with the world amid tawdry headlines and indecent images. Philippe, no, they cannot do that. I am not even 12 weeks, and I can't tell anyone until then. You have to explain that to them. There have to be mothers at the times. They have to understand. Well, first of all, congratulations. I am really happy for you. Second of all, they have two sources, so they don't really need my official confirmation. They are going to run with it. They're just giving me a courtesy heads up. Is there anyone you want to tell personally before it becomes public? No, I shouted as I sank to the floor. This is wrong. Two sources. Who could have told them? My mind immediately went to the friends I had seen the weekend before. Could I no longer trust my close friends? I felt guilty the instant my mind went there. It may be wrong but it's also news. It's big news. Do you want to at least call Hillary and tell her? No. This is not how I am telling her, over the phone, sitting on my kitchen floor, screaming. I dare them to run this story. They just won't do it. I know they won't. Philippe sat on the other end of the phone, listening patiently, while Anthony stood in the doorframe, head bowed. I reaffirmed I had no intention of telling anyone until I was safely past my first trimester. We hung up. I had let all the rage and anger blaze out of me, and still no tears had come. I was on the linoleum floor, back against the wall under the small kitchen window. On a low, recessed shelf next to me was a wedding present a blown glass decanter in the shape of a U. A few days later, it tipped forward and broke neatly in half. Maybe a gentle breeze had blown it over, or maybe the cats had wagged their tails and knocked it. Whatever the cause, it seemed a perfect metaphor for my broken heart. Over those painful hours, I was just existing, trying to make it through each day. When I wasn't strangled by fury, I did manage to ask Anthony the only question that rang incessantly in my head. Why? Why would you do this? You have someone who loves you, who is carrying your child. You have a job that is challenging, fulfilling, exciting, and purposeful. You have family and friends who love you a future that any casual observer would say is full of possibility. Why? 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 Anthony's answers were never long and never satisfactory. He didn't know. It was all a virtual game, he said. He would tune in, play with other avatars, and then return to reality. Many of the women used fake names 
posted fake pictures of themselves, so their true identities were often a mystery even to him. It was maddening to hear that. I know, I promise, I won't do it again, he said over and over again. It is not as though political sex scandals hadn't already rocked the Democratic Party in recent years. I had been in the car when New York's then-governor, Elliot Spitzer, called to tell HRC he was about to resign effective immediately, and then admitted to soliciting prostitutes. I connected Dina McGreevy's call to HRC when her husband, Jim McGreevy, had resigned as governor of New Jersey after admitting he was unfaithful and come out as gay. And of course, I had been working in the First Lady's office during President Clinton's impeachment trial. There was a very long list of examples of what might be viewed as traditional marital infidelity. Cases where there was a spate of stories, an epic fall from grace, a shocked set of constituents. In Anthony's case, it was a scandal that had all the same elements, except, it seemed, the sex. This behavior was in an entirely digital arena that no one really understood yet, which led back to the question of why. Anthony's staff was inundated with calls as the pressure to resign increased. Other senior Democrats were now on the spot in every press conference, being asked to comment on Anthony. Even the White House was asked, and mercifully, they said that the president would not be weighing in. But the mere fact that the question had been posed was humiliating. That Obama didn't call on Anthony to resign gave us some breathing room. If our president had called for his immediate resignation, the pressure, as bad as it was, would only have been worse. There were unrelenting questions from colleagues, reporters, concerned family and friends, all demanding answers about what the plan was. We needed time and space to think, and privacy, but all were in short supply. Anthony needed professional help, and we had to figure out where to get it. Having no idea where to turn, and with no time to research therapy programs, we sought crisis psychiatric care. The therapist we were introduced to in New York suggested Anthony go to a center in Texas, which specialized in psychiatric evaluations. When we spoke with the director of the center, he recommended that Anthony come alone for two days of interviews as soon as possible. Then we would return together for two additional days of couples therapy and evaluation after which they would write a report with their assessment. It sounded like a plan. We signed up not even knowing if we could afford it. Part of me thought it was a little overkill. But if Anthony was willing and they could talk to him about this game and help him get past it, I would embrace the process, whatever my doubts. I still was certain that Anthony could just stop if he wanted to. So did he really need a long-term therapy plan? After all, everything about Anthony's way of life was moderation. He never overate or overshopped 
or overspent on anything. He was disciplined about working out, about focusing on his job, about reading the New York Times front to back every weekend. This behavior seemed so outside of Anthony's DNA that I was sure it was just a weird blip, something I didn't understand, but that he had put behind him. And despite everything, the rage, the shame, the ache in my heart, I knew I still loved him. I turned my full attention back to what I could understand, my job. The day after Anthony's press conference, I was scheduled to leave for the United Arab Emirates. I returned to Washington and walked into HRC's office on the afternoon of June 7th. For two and a half years, I'd been in and out of her private office several times a day. I would walk through an outer reception area where Claire sat, past the formal sitting room, then enter the little sanctum. Her office was elegant, small, with wood paneling, a cream and gold embroidered damask sofa, colorful paintings on the wall from both her own and the State Department's extensive collection. The Lincoln Memorial was visible from the recessed windows, which had yellow cushioned benches. Several sculptures adorned the built-in cabinets behind the desk, one of a pregnant African woman, a reminder of who does the world's labor, and another of Eleanor Roosevelt, watching over HRC as she worked. When I walked in, HRC looked worried, and I hated that her evident concern was because of me. Philippe had clearly told her about my pregnancy because she stood up, came around her desk, and offered me a careful congratulations. I wanted to tell you myself was all I could get out before I burst into tears. She walked me over to the window seat, sat with me, rubbing my back, trying to reassure me, telling me over and over again that it was going to be okay. I was crying so loudly that Claire closed the door to the outer office. A full three days after receiving Anthony's earth-shattering revelation, the tears were finally flowing. The fact that I could not share my pregnancy news the way I wanted, with the people I loved, is a trauma that stays with me even now. Everything else was awful, but this was something else, my once-in-a-lifetime gift. A full decade later, there are many days when I am in the shower or cooking dinner or browsing in a shop, and I hear the words, I am pregnant, emerge from my lips, without any conscious intention, as though my brain is reminding me I never got to say them when it mattered most to me. After I don't know how long before I caught my breath, HRC asked, Do you still want to go on this trip? I think it's important for me to do my work, I said, blowing my nose. I think it would be good for you to go, too, she said. I walked into her private restroom and looked at myself in the mirror. My eyes were puffy and red. I splashed cold water over my face, blotted it gently with a hand towel, and took a deep breath. Then I returned to work. That night, we boarded the Secretary of State's aircraft, and hours later, when we were crossing from Europe to the Middle East, Lou Lukens mentioned we would have to switch planes in the next few days, which happened from time to time. 
He had already placed the request through state, but asked if I would call the White House for approval to make sure we weren't stranded on one of the Africa stops. I picked up the phone by my seat and called the State Department Operations Center to be connected to White House Deputy Chief of Staff Alyssa Mastromonaco. I asked whether she had received our request for the plane, and she assured me she had. Then there was a moment of silence. Everyone here is thinking of you, she said. Then she added that the president had wanted to reach out. She hadn't known what to suggest. A phone call or perhaps a note? A phone call with the president of the United States to talk about my personal humiliation? It was more than I could bear. Please just tell him I am so sorry for embarrassing the administration. I hung up and stared out into the blackness through the window. Who was this man who sent the tweet? I did not know that Anthony. The Anthony I knew was so many things, but not that. I was snapped out of my daze when HRC appeared from her cabin to join Philippe, Jake, and me at the table that anchored our quartet of seats. It was only a few minutes into this briefing that I realized that I had tears rolling down my cheeks again. I hoped no one would say anything. The one thing that was worse than what I was feeling was the idea that people would take pity on me. Everyone acted as though nothing was amiss. A few hours later, before we landed in the Emirates, Philippe looked up from across the table. It's out, he said. On June 8th at 5.11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, a day after Philippe's warning call, the New York Times, followed almost immediately by several other media outlets, announced I was pregnant. Cheryl, Jake, Lona, and Philippe had all given me big hugs congratulating me when I walked into work the previous day. They chose to focus on the happy news, as I'd expected they would. But most of the dozens of people on this large airplane had not known, until they got breaking news alerts on their laptops, that the woman a few seats away from them was pregnant. Under any normal circumstances, it shouldn't have been national news. It wouldn't have been national news, but it was now. It was close to midnight when we arrived at Emirates Palace Hotel in Abu Dhabi, and operationally, it was business as usual. Except I was no longer anyone usual. I was now the thing in the room that everyone avoided talking about. HRC had a meeting at our hotel the next morning with the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed, or MBZ, as many of us called him. He would be accompanied by his ambassador to the United States, Yusuf al a longtime good friend of mine. The cameras had already assembled to capture their greeting with HRC. I half wondered if I should join her or if I should avoid being a distraction, but no one told me not to do my job, so I just kept doing it, though I hung back a little as we filed into the room. HRC easily could have avoided the official introductions of her team, but she beckoned me forward and made a point to introduce me. At a moment when any other politician might have disappeared her embarrassing staffer, HRC signaled to the entire world that she wasn't ashamed of me. 
Then Yusuf gave me a reassuring hug. His wife, Abir, had just had a baby, and we had marveled about their experience as new parents when I'd had dinner at their house recently. He smiled, said congratulations, and whispered, You okay? That night, Yusuf organized an informal dinner for a few of us at the hotel. I had just begun to eat when I got a message that Cheryl wanted me in HRC's room. When I arrived in her suite, HRC and Cheryl told me I should go to my own room, that there were some people waiting to see me. I assumed this would be about some kind of crisis awaiting us at our next stop, but usually I was the one informing her, not the other way around. My room was big and comfortable, with high ceilings, plush carpeting, a neutral-toned bedspread, and curtains. As I entered, I saw a large coffee table, laid out with an elaborate tray of fresh fruit, dates, and chocolates, and beyond that, on a low L-shaped sofa in the sitting area, was my mother. My brother Hassan paced nearby. How did you know to come here? I blurted out. Hillary, my mom said, and I didn't need to know anything more. I hugged them both tight, and my mother, my brother, and I sat together, holding one another's hands, soothing one another, my mother asking over and over, are you okay? I am so sorry I have brought this on the family, I said quietly. I waited for them to say, we warned you, we were never certain about this marriage. Instead, Hassan said, We are here to support you. Whatever you choose to do, we are with you. With concern for me etching deep lines into her face, Mom added, I have been so worried. You need to focus on being healthy for the baby. I cannot wait for this grandchild. It is a blessing. We are always here for you and love you. We three just sat together silent for some time, a little pod of gloom and love. HRC and Cheryl joined us after a while, and the conversation turned toward the baby, my maternal health, and plans for the future. One where Anthony's place was uncertain. <laughs>